Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayhold Voles LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Andrea Lee, a partner at Glayholt Bowles LLP, and I'm here today with Marcus Rotterdam, the firm's director of research. Today's topic is going to focus on the issue of the design professional and the conflicts that they face in acting as the administrator of construction contracts. So, Marcus, I recently spoke at a continuing professional development program in December for design professionals, and one of the panel discussions that was really interesting involved what the speakers called the minefield of contract administration. And so the question was posed to these panelists um, who were from a professional association, a practitioner, and an insurance representative. And the question was posed, why is contract administration such a minefield for the design professional? And so the responses highlighted some of the reasons from their perspective why this was the case. One person said, you know, the issue is not really taught at school. Uh, The focus is more on design and less on the administration of a contract. Another person said, in their view, it wasn't really what the purpose of what design professionals do. The purpose is really to focus on the design and not so much the other aspects of their roles and responsibilities, such as contract administration. Another panelist disagreed with that view and said, well, actually, it is the continuation. It's the evolution of the design process, because what you are, in fact, doing is making sure that the design gets built in the way you view it. And finally, the last panelist said that the introduction of a third party being the contractor makes this relationship a bit more adversarial. So these are some of the reasons why they think that contract administration is viewed as a minefield from the design professional's perspective. What are your thoughts on that, Marcus? Well, I think there's a number of issues um, that arise from the various roles of architects and engineers on any given construction project. And those issues have really been around for a long time. Courts have been commenting on them for you know, well over a century. So it's always been a bit baffling to me that even though everybody involved seems to acknowledge that there is such a thing as a minefield in contract administration. Those issues really seem to be ignored in schools and simply accepted for what they are. As for the actual problems, I think the the foremost issue has always been the fact that on the one hand, the architect or engineer is hired and paid for by the owner, acts as an agent of the owner. But on the other hand, the duty of administrating the project is very often acting in a a quasi-judicial capacity. So if you look at the roles of an architect, for example, if you look at the Canadian Handbook of Practice for Architects, um, that lists specific functions um, the architect fulfills during constructions, and that includes things like timely interpretation of the contract, responding to RFIs, the preparation of change forms, claims for extras, and most importantly and crucially in this context, uh, reviewing progress payment requests. Those lists aren't limited to architects. Engineers have very similar obligations, and they're listed in the various associations of professional engineers' guidelines on the engineers' responsibilities on projects. And those duties are also found in pretty much every single standard construction contract you will find, such as the REIC's Document 6 or the ACEC's Document 31. 
So that's the first conflict. How do you stay independent in ruling on a contractor's payment application, for example, when you're paid by the owner? That's issue one, and that will always, at least in my mind, be the main conflict. Second conflict arises from the fact that consultants, when they are adjudicating between positions taken by either the owner and the contractor, they will very often be placed in a situation where they have to comment on work they themselves have prepared. Now, obviously, in such situations, they have an interest in the outcome. That's also not something new. That's something Justice McLaughlin, for example, has explored in her standard text on the Canadian law of architecture. And she states, for example, that it may be doubted whether the person responsible for the plans and specifications on a project can be objective on questions of compliance with the contract specifications. That's a direct quote from Justice McLaughlin, and that's issue number two. And then finally, there's the issue on how consultants typically get paid on projects. If you look at the REIC document six, for example, that contemplates various methods of payments, including a fixed fee. Now, on traditional architectural projects, the contract administration phase accounts for, I would say, roughly 25 to 35 percent of the total fee. If that work is performed on a fixed fee basis, then there could very well be very little incentive on an architect to spend more than the estimated time on those services in order to uh, avoid financial losses. So, to my mind, those are the three main issues that give rise to turning contract administration into a minefield. Now, having said all that, um, I mean, you went to architecture school before switching to law, so I'd be interested to hear why you think this is just being ignored in schools. I assume one reason could just be, as you alluded to in the intro, that it's hard to, to see somebody like Zaha Hadid, for example, you know, pour over some kind of change order. I mean, she's, she's busy designing beautiful things, so it could just be as simple as that. But more importantly, aside from the fact or the question why it's not taught, what do you think we can do about it? Well, Marcus, you raised one of the architects that I respect and admire in in terms of her work. But your question about why it's not taught in school uh, is a good one. I think, you know, like a lot of other professional schools, the focus is more on the design aspects of architecture over the more, you know, mundane issues such as contract administration. And there's not a lot taught about the construction process generally through school. So, you know, I, I didn't learn about a lot of things that I imagine architects deal with on a daily basis, such as, you know, what do you do when a contractor is angrily raising a number of questions about your design at meetings or how to address clients' concerns about budgets? And again, I think that's the same with a lot of professional schools like law school, as an example. I, I, I didn't learn how to put together a a mediation brief uh, in law school, and I had to learn that coming out into practice. But as for what can be done to address those dilemmas that you introduced, I think that there are a few paths, and believe it or not, people have tried to tackle these problems before. So the, the third problem you raised, actually, is the fee issue. I think that's probably the easiest thing to deal with. So, I mean, you mentioned there are common approaches to professional fees that are widely understood. So there's time basis for calculating it percentage of construction basis or just a fixed fee for services. And I think in a time where we're seeing a lot of complex projects and lots of questions being asked by the contractor, we had a a matter that we dealt with once where there were thousands of change documents that were 
issued over the course of one project. So, you know, where there is a heavier involvement of the consultant required in the contract administration phase, I think that you could find a way in the design services agreement to accommodate this growth in services, whether you call them additional services that are to be supplied on an hourly basis, or, you know, you come up with a different category. For example, you know, we've now got adjudication and prompt payment here in Ontario. If consultants are required to go beyond what would be viewed as a standard service or the standard level of service to respond to, you know, prompt payment and adjudication changes, then you could have a separate category of fees for those services. And I know if you look at, for example, the OEA 600 document, they've updated it recently exactly for this point where they say that the services related to uh, assisting with adjudications are, are going to be treated as an additional service. But the other issues that you raised, I think, are less straightforward. And I know that people have been putting their minds to to these issues for a number of years when we look at the case law across Canada. So, you know, one case from the Alberta Court of Appeal talked about whether or not you can incorporate professional codes of ethics into consultants' agreements. And would that help? What the Court of Appeal actually said in, in, in that case was, you know, while it's true that a design professional's actions might constitute a conflict of interest, an owner doesn't have a con- or shouldn't have a contractual remedy against the engineer. Rather, your remedy is to, you know, make a complaint to the disciplinary body because there are procedures there that the governing bodies have set up to deal with these types of issues where you're, you know, alleging that there's a conflict of interest and perhaps the design professional hasn't acted in in a reasonable way. And so I know that the, the Court of Appeal there had made a decision on it and I believe that case was followed by the court in Northwest Territories, where a court found that whether an engineer's action constituted a conflict of interest that should have been disclosed, that's a matter that's properly the subject of a disciplinary hearing and not a matter for litigation over a breach of contract. So can codes of ethics be used in a design professional contract? I don't think so. I think the courts have said that's not the way to deal with the dilemma. So trying to do that is not going to fix anything in Canada. Marcus, any other thoughts on that? Well, I mean, you know, if there's an inherent conflict of interest that we're talking about here in an architect's or engineer's decision-making role, then uh, I don't know. What about eliminating the role altogether? I mean, the contract administration role, not the not the architect's engineer's role, obviously. But what about us taking that aspect of it the contract administration aspect away from the architect or engineer. That would certainly be a drastic way to get rid of any inherent conflict. I think that's been discussed, actually, but widely rejected, at least here in Canada. I think the consensus is that despite any misgivings about conflicts, the consultant's role is crucial. And it's hard to imagine a product of of any size where an owner and contractor try to interact without their assistance. I guess it's similar to why we in the litigation world go to seek external help on mediations and and arbitrations. You need that third party there. And in fact, I guess the design professional is really the one with all the knowledge as to what the design documents or what the contract documents are trying to say. So Justice McLaughlin had commented 
that the role of the interpreter and the judge is actually seen as a continuation of the design process, which is very much in line with what the architect on that continuing education program had said. It's really a furtherance or an evolution of the design, and the architect or engineer is critical to that process. And they are the party best equipped to make decisions about how their design is executed. So I think that's a good point there. And I I don't think it's going to be possible to completely eliminate the contract administration role of the consultant. So I guess that boils down then to while there might be a conflict of interest by judging somebody who pays you, that's still very much better than judging yourself, which is what an owner would basically do if he were to assume those functions himself, right? Yes, I think there's actually a, a, a case on that out of BC where the, the Court of Appeal there said that if a contract stipulates that a contractor is going to be bound by the decisions of an independent design professional, the owner can't just eliminate that role and assume it, you know, him or herself. As we all know, the standard form contracts that are widely in use in Canada actually provide for the role of the consultant right in the contract. So, you know, for example, you take a look at the CCDCs. In most of the CCDCs, it, it carves out a role for the consultant to be the decision maker. And where that's the form of contract being used, an owner can't just simply say, you know, midway through the project or something that they just want to eliminate that role. So it looks like that way of dealing with the problem hasn't found favor in Canada. So if one of the issues that we've we've talked about seems to be the problem that consultants very often are put in a position where they might have to comment on something they themselves designed, could that not be addressed maybe by splitting the consultant's role into two? So you, I don't know, you have one architect designing the project and another one who is in charge of contract administration. So not have that done by the same entity, but just split the whole thing into two different roles? I think that's how things are are done in much of continental Europe, actually. It's uncommon there for the designing architect to also be in charge of contract administration and to act in this sort of decision-making capacity. So in France, for example, owners tend to task either their engineering consultants or architects who specialize in construction supervision with the administration of the contract, and it's a separate entity than the firm that they engage to do the design. Recently, I've learned, you know, here in Toronto that some design firms out there only do the design portions and have another firm brought in to do the contract administration. So, I mean, up until really recently, the AIA or the uh, American Institute of Architects had a standard form document to contemplate that situation. So it was the B209, I believe, which was an architect's contract administration document. And and this was for use where the owner had engaged another architect for design services. So it looks like the AIA at, at a point in time contemplated, you know, what was being done throughout much of continental Europe. Now, for whatever reason, that document has been retired as recently, I think, as, as last fall. So I'm not sure why it was retired, and I'm not sure why it hasn't received more attention. But that being said, I think splitting this role of design professional into, you know, design firm and then contract administration firm could actually be a viable means of eliminating this conflict. And as as I recently learned, it seems that some firms are already doing this. 
Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I think there's a, a somewhat related concept in, in play in some other European countries. Like if you look at the Netherlands and Sweden, for example, which we did when we prepared for a paper on this point, what they seem to do there is they, they limit the supervisory role of the design architects to those aspects designed by that architect itself. So you may very well have the same professional perform both the design and the contract administration roles, but the scope of their decision-making authority would be reduced to only those technical issues in their plans, for example, and the third party would be retained to to determine all other matters. So that's also a matter of splitting the consultant's role somewhat, but this time with a view not to limiting the review work of their own work, but to limiting their work to matters pertaining to actual matters of architecture or engineering rather than uh, administrative work. And I think maybe to some extent that makes a lot of sense because as you discussed from your own experience in architecture schools, I mean, architects are trained mostly, obviously, in architecture. And while they, they certainly should have and mostly do have a very good understanding of most of the legal issues that govern the industry, there's some sense in questioning the fact that architects or engineers should necessarily be the ones in charge of contract interpretation, for example. Like that, that very often involves the application of legal principle. While any architect or engineer is very well positioned to determine, for example, whether a contractor has built something to spec, it's much less clear, at least to me, how an architect is trained to determine, for example, what amounts are properly held back with respect to applications for payment or why it is that an engineer is the one who should assign responsibility for delay. I mean, those are not necessarily issues that are taught in architecture and engineering school, at least as far as I know. Why would it be those professions who make that kind of determination? That's right, Marcus. And and actually, requiring a consultant to make findings on legal matters could veer into the practice of law which under all of our provincial legislation is is really restricted to the members of the legal profession. And so the OAA actually recognizes some of this difficulty in its recently updated document 600 because it delineates which architects are equipped to handle and they're, you know, they've been trained for and that for which they're not. So the new changes to the standard form clarify that it remains the client's responsibility under that contract to provide required legal accounting and insurance counseling services and other issues, you know, might relate to prompt payment, for example, under the Construction Act. So there is some good rationale for splitting or limiting the work of design professionals. And I think, you know, when you look at adjudication now, you could actually have the design professional do the technical decision making or the interpretation of design issues while sending out the payment issues that arise between the contractor and the owner to a neutral third-party adjudicator to determine. And this determination could be done in a really quick way that could keep the project going. And it also removes some of the adversarial relationship between the consultant and design professional because it's not the design professional that is making the decision as to whether or not the, the contractor should get full payment for its invoice. And then you're also not worried about incurring the wrath of your client, the owner, who now has to make the additional payment. So I think perhaps statutory education is, is a good way to split or limit the work of design professionals to really something that's within the scope of their knowledge and, and training. 
Another thing I think is interesting is uh, something you brought up when we were discussing this podcast and what to what to say when doing the podcast, and that was the idea of going back to the master builder. So looking back at the Renaissance or Europe, the people who built the cathedrals, these were people called master builders who basically were in charge of the entire project. And I think that idea of yours came up because somebody from the uh, American Institute of Architects brought it up in a paper you looked at, correct? Yes, that paper was by Nancy Solomon. So she's an AIA architect who noted that design-build is actually akin to the process that was really common a long time ago when projects were brought to life by the master builder rather than what we have today, which is a splintered group of architects, engineers, and, and contractors. So that made me think whether or not we could go back to a time where we have single entity being the one that designed and built the project. And on the one hand, you think, well, as the years have progressed, projects are getting much more complex, and the number of specialists that are needed to form an entire design team is growing. You've got, you know, geotechnical specialists, you've got acoustics specialists, you have code specialists. So all of these different parties, you need to somehow find a way to to harness all of this knowledge in a way that really allows sharing so that these different silos of design professionals can sort of act more in a, in a unified way and with less finger pointing if something goes wrong. And at the same time, you've got to bring in some of the construction knowledge that is missing if you just have designers talking about a project for, you know, the first year. Well, they're missing out on all of the construction experience that could bring to bear some cost savings, advice on sequencing, for example. So I think one of the newer project delivery models that has gained traction in Canada is IPD, or Integrated Project Delivery. And I think that IPD could actually serve as a, as a way for all of the parties to come together at a very early stage in a project and collaborate and really try to work at tearing down those silos and collectively form the master builder instead of these you know splintered groups of architects, engineers, and contractors. Because in IPD, you know, the model is really to to limit liability as between parties, to collaborate, to share information, and really benefit from both the design side and the construction side experience. Of course, now it takes a lot of effort up front to get an IPD project going, and you've got to have a client that's willing to take this new innovative way of doing projects and agree to spend a lot of that time and effort and cost, frankly, up front in order to try and minimize the disputes or, or cost growth down the road. But, you know, IPD, as I said, is gaining traction here in Canada. I think at the point in time where, you know, we were looking at this first back in 2019, I think at that point there were about 50 projects that had either been completed or were, were underway here in Canada that um, were being done under this IPD model. So I think, yeah, and, and actually, sorry, I should say, there has been one reported case of a dispute arising under IPD that came out from Western Canada. And interestingly, I mean, that case is really interesting because when you look at it and, and the comments that were made by by the court citing from the arbitrator's decision, 
is that IPD is such a new form of contracting that many of the parties and even their counsel didn't know how to properly describe it to the arbitrator. And to the arbitrator, it seemed like, you know, it was a little bit of a utopia at the beginning because everyone was going to share ideas and share risks and rewards. But where the project model broke down in the arbitrator's view was that it started to resort back to these traditional silos of the designers, you know, hoard their information, the contractors hoard their information, and then disputes arose. So the reason why that project fell apart in the sense is not because of the model itself, but because parties were resorting back to things that were familiar to them. So I think that IPD might be a modern solution to merge design and construction experience together so that you perhaps eliminate this one person, two hat dilemma that the consultant faces, but it will likely take a lot of time for parties to get used to a new way of delivering a project. So I think it's fair to say then that that none of these approaches we've talked about are an easy cure-all to all of the dilemmas we identified. I think it might even be fair to say that not even everyone in the profession agrees that there are necessarily dilemmas that are in urgent need of, of fixing. But I think at least some of the cures, if you want to call them that, we've talked about here might at least begin to address some of the dilemmas where you have a designer who is engaged directly by the owner to be its agent and then also to be an impartial decision maker. Again, none of these things we've talked about will will cure all the problems we've dealt with. But to the extent that there is a problem, I think they might at least serve as beginning to some sort of solution. I agree with that comment, Marcus. I think some people in the profession might not see contract administration issues as such a big deal since, you know, this is the way projects have been designed and built for years. But I think that even those folks would admit there are some challenges that can arise when the consultant is trying to decisions in respect of its own design and its own contract documents that it helped to prepare, this can lead to the growth of adversarial relationships and tension on a project, given this dual role of the the consultant. So as recent changes to the Ontario Construction Act have shown, we've talked about comp payment adjudication. I mean, those are significant changes. And the mere fact that the construction industry has been living with no prompt payment, no adjudication for, you know, over a century doesn't mean that they should continue doing things in the same way. And I think the industry is continuing to grow and continuing to evolve. And now people are talking about in the construction industry things like, well, maybe we need to come up with a better way to procure projects instead of using price as the the driving consideration. And that's a big change. I mean, if you, you know, you think about the, the age old contract A, contract B, rules behind bidding and tendering to to change something like the way we procure projects is going to require a huge shift in the industry. And so similarly, for design professionals, I think that the mere fact that they've been sort of straddling this dual role and wearing two hats with some tension doesn't mean that the profession has to continue this way forever. I think we can start considering some of these changes, uh, and it might actually reduce some of the disputes that we see in our line of work and avoid costly litigation in the future. Well, thanks, Andrea, for that talk. I uh, found that interesting, and I hope that at least some of our listeners found it thought-provoking as well. Now, 
any listeners who are interested in reading more about this topic, we might point out that Andrea and I uh, recently published a paper on this in the Journal of the Canadian College of Construction Lawyers. You can find that paper either on our website or on Westlaw, again, should you wish to read any more about this. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at glayholt.com. We look forward to having you join us again.